Given the events, sad events of this past week that have swirled around um, uh, a video and as, as a trigger for what went on probably, I don't think there could be a more important text, a more timely text than the one that we're considering from Ephesians this morning. And to get at this text, you need to notice something very important about it. In fact, if you, if you have a Bible, you might turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're around verses 25 to 32. Whether you do or not, notice that it's surrounded, this text, by two therefores. One at the beginning of the text that ties it to what goes before it, and one in the verse just after this text that ties it to the text that, that we have, ties it to the next section. And so you know the old adage, we have to find out what the therefore is there for, right? Actually, the verses before and after are admonitions that frame these imperatives that we have read this morning. And by the way, note that most of these imperatives that we read this morning um, start with a negative, such as don't lie, and then go to a positive, such as tell the truth, and then go to a reason for the negative and the positive, in this case, because we are all members of one body. Now, the admonition that comes before verse 25 is this, put on the new humanity. Be renewed in the image and the likeness of the one who created us in the first place. And then the admonition that comes after verse 32 is this. Be imitators of God as beloved children. In other words, be children of the one who made us. They both boil down to the same thing. The goal of our salvation is to recover the image of God. The humanity that we were created to be in the first place, when God put the whole cosmos together. The humanity that is supposed to look like the heavenly Father whose children we are. We're trying to become, once again, a chip off the old block. And it's very important to realize that Paul is saying all of this to us, not as individuals, but as a church body. All of these imperatives that we read this morning are in the plural pronoun. Uh, if, if you don't understand that, if you're from the South, in other words, uh, every one of them should have said, y'all, y'all, right? <laughs> it's not just to us as an individual this morning, it's to us as a church body. It's to the Ephesian church as a church body. And when the triune God created us, the three who were in this eternal love relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, said, let us create humankind in our image. And so he created them, male and female. We were created in the image of God. And here in Ephesians, it's as if, it's as if Paul changes the noun image into a verb. We image God when we live together in a love relationship that reflects the triune God 
that we worship. Think of image as a verb. Not just what we do, but what we are. Paul has been telling us this all through Ephesians, and and that this is precisely what God is up to with, with this family called church. He went head over heels in chapter one, for instance, gushing over the grace of God that has been lavished on us, that has been lavished not only on his fellow Jews, but on the outsider Gentiles. He proclaimed in no uncertain terms in chapter two that those who were far off, the Gentiles, and those who were near, the Jews, have been brought together because now they love, they're in love with one person, Jesus Christ. And in chapter three, he prayed for this newly formed family of mixed origin that they might know together with all the saints all the dimensions of God's love in Jesus Christ. And now in chapter four, he's been telling us how to go about the nitty-gritty of reflecting this God revealed in Jesus Christ. I mean, how do you do that? How do you image the one in whose likeness we are being recreated? How do you live like the Jesus who who called us into this family? Well, Paul's telling us what kind of behavior is to characterize a group of folks who are being renewed together into the image of the one who made and loves us. And in this passage, a lot of what this imaging has to do, notice, has to do a lot with the way we use our language. And that's why I think it's so timely this morning in the cultural situation we live in. All of us probably have uh, family picture albums. And now with digital pictures and flip videos, I've been keeping one of our granddaughter on my desktop and on my iPod Touch. Trebekah's doing the same thing with her iPad, replacing what uh, grandmothers used to have as a wallet full of pictures, which they would pull out on some unsuspecting victim. (laughs) Although now you can get a lot more pictures on the iPad. You just can't carry it in your pocket. And it wasn't long ago that uh, we were making these family albums on, on videotape. And the thing that was better about videotapes than the preceding media, which was eight millimeter film, is that you could more easily edit the videotape. You could delete relatives in the family album that you just as soon leave out. (laughs) And I have to confess that um, the videotape that I received of my grandmother's 75th birthday party um, resulted in some relatives ending up on the editing room floor. So I still have that edited videotape. Well, that reminds me, though, of, a, of one of my uh, friends, a, a monk, uh, Brother Bennett's, um, his words to us. He was telling some of us about his call to the monastery. And he said, you know, in the monastery, you live with people whom, if it were up to you, you would not have chosen. That's a lot different, isn't it? I mean, that's a lot different than my videotape. The Christian church is like that. The Christian church is a family that belongs to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But unlike my videotape, and more like Brother Bennett's comment, we're not supposed to edit out brothers and sisters, socioeconomic classes, ethnic identities, age groups, 
We're not to edit those out of the Christian church. We're stuck in this family because God has called us to be together whether we like it or not. And so since we've been immersed into this family, Paul tells us to tell the truth because lying to others is like lying to ourselves since we are all one body. Paul tells this family being recreated in God's image to avoid giving God's adversary a foothold in this community's life through violent expressions of anger that smolder. In fact, Paul insists that we have to use speech that builds up rather than tears down, that builds up the church body rather than speech that is ugly and, 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 and accomplishes nothing. He says, rid yourselves of any expressions of bitterness, anger, resentment, yelling, slander, and mean-spirited attitude. Instead, he says, be tender-hearted and compassionate, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. To do otherwise is to disappoint God's Spirit. He says, to do otherwise is to make the Holy Spirit sad because it is Christ's spirit working in us that wants to renew us until the day when the cosmos is restored and finally we look like Jesus who is the very image of God. I was once asked by a Wheaton College student, do you think that God is angry with me when I don't have my daily devotions? And I said, no. I think God is really sad. I think God is really disappointed because you two had a date and God was really looking forward to getting together with you in the morning. And then you rushed out the door and hardly gave him a notice. And he's just sad. Like we make the Holy Spirit sad. But He'll still be there the next morning, waiting, hoping, not forcing himself on you. In the same way, when we don't behave like those upon whom Christ's Spirit has marked us for recreation in God's image, we make God's Spirit disappointed and sad. Well, how do we know if we're making progress in all of this? Ultimately, Paul tells us it's all to be measured by the person of Christ himself. We're growing up into Christ, and we measure our progress, as he said back in verse 13 of this chapter, we measure it by who Christ is. We're not trying to grow up to be good Baptists or Anglicans or Roman Catholics or Methodists or Presbyterians or Charismatics or Orthodox or Saddlebackers. No, we're the only standard by which to measure our growth as a body into this renewed humanity is Christ. And that will ensure the unity that Paul has been insistent on throughout this letter because if we're all growing up into the same person, then we're all coming together. Cardinal Swainens, I love his comment about this unity. He said, there will be unity in the church not when Moscow talks with Canterbury and not when Canterbury talks with Rome. 
There will be unity in the church when Moscow talks with Jesus Christ and Canterbury talks with Jesus Christ and, and, and Rome talks with Jesus Christ. Our unity as Christians doesn't come from our agreement on every little detail of doctrine or liturgical propriety or social agenda. It comes from our love of the same person that causes us to imitate that person in a way that, 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 that well, that causes us to, to want to be what he is to want to speak to people as he spoke, to want to treat his enemies, our enemies, as he treated his enemies, to want to pray for our persecutors as he prayed for those who persecuted him, who want to display the generosity that he displayed with the work that comes from our labor. That's the way God set it up. And even as we gather around the communion table this morning, he's getting us ready for this great banquet when, when the one that we've been trying to know and imitate will be the host. Because to share this cup is to share a destiny and a rendezvous with the one who is the host, with the Christ in the future. And when that day comes, don't let this poem characterize your experience, one that I may have, I think I, I, think I shared with you before. I dreamed death came the other night, and heaven's gates swung wide. With kindly grace, an angel ushered me inside. And there, to my astonishment, stood folks I'd known on earth, some I judged and labeled as unfit or of little worth. Indignant words rose to my lips, but never were set free. For every face showed stunned surprise. No one expected me. You see, it's going to take the strength of the Holy Spirit within us to overcome our individualism and our self-help mentality. We've got to rely on that Pentecost spirit so that we don't put down a brother or sister who worships just a little bit differently than we do, who is richer or poor, who doesn't see eye to eye with us what the Bible says about welfare or the significance of infant baptism lest we be embarrassed when we sit down at that big banquet table at the marriage supper of the Lamb and find out that we are sitting next to people whom Christ invited but whom we had crossed off the guest list long ago because the width and length of our table was not as wide and long as this table. Remember this morning in our communion that we together are in the process of putting off the old humanity and cooperating with God in the recreation of the new humanity. To become once again those whose life together images the God revealed in Jesus Christ. The world is depending on it. The world the world is depending on it just like, just like as the world needed God's people in the time of Zechariah to be truth-telling people who lived in peace and harmony. Just as Jesus' disciples needed to be the community that refused to use violence to resist evil because they followed a Jesus who refused to retaliate even when he was falsely accused of a capital offense. The world depends on it. Now, 
just as they did then when Jesus' followers needed to be a community that loves his na- his enem- its enemies and prays for the people who persecute them. Because that way, that way we will be children of our Father in heaven, says Jesus. Because that way, says Jesus, we will be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. Because that way, we will reflect the God who created us in his image and who wants to make new again what we have deranged by our sinful ways and misguided lives. You know, in the latest issue of Christian Century, I read of a grassroots movement encouraging churches to do something together on election night to signify and embody our oneness in Christ, to gather together to hold communion around the Lord's table on election night. It's called Election Day Communion. It's meant to follow Paul's admonition at the beginning of this chapter to be zealous to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, even despite political differences. Wouldn't that be a testimony to a world that desperately needs to hear that message? And they'll know we are Christians by our love. Years ago, when our children were little, we visited Trevecca's aunt and cousins in Bytesville, Mississippi. And at one point, um, our family of four, two little kids, and Trevecca and I stood around talking to one of Trevecca's cousins until Teresa looked at our kids and looked at me and says, why, Dennis, it doesn't look like you had a thing to do with either one of these kids. Well, I hope that folks outside the church never, ever say something like that about us at HTC, especially those in the neighborhood where we're going to relocate next week. I hope that they don't look at our life together and say, why, Holy Trinity, it doesn't look like Jesus had a single thing to do with any of you. I hope instead that our new neighbors will observe our life together And that they will say, as those did in in Zechariah's time, that we want to grab the hem of of your shirt or your blouse, ten of them doing that, and say, let us go with you because we believe that God is with you. I hope that they will observe our life together and say, we know that you are disciples of Jesus Christ by the love that you guys have for one another. And so listen one more time as we finish this sermon to to this, this morning's text from Ephesians in Eugene Peterson's translation with those verses, those admonitions that surround the therefores. You learned Christ. My assumption is that you have paid careful attention to him, been well instructed in the truth precisely as we have it in Jesus. Since then, we don't have the excuse of ignorance. Everything, and I do mean everything, connected with that old way of life has to go. It's rotten through and through. Get rid of it. And then take on an entirely new way of life, 
a God-fashioned life, a life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. And what this adds up to then is this. No more lies, no more pretense. Tell your neighbor the truth. In Christ's body, we're all connected to each other after all, and when you lie to others, you end up lying to yourself. Go ahead and be angry. You do well to be angry, but don't use your anger as fuel for revenge. And don't stay angry. Don't go to bed angry. Don't give the devil that kind of foothold in your life. Did you use to make ends meet by stealing? Well, no more. Get an honest job so that you can help others who can't work. Watch the way you talk. Let nothing foul or dirty come out of your mouth. Say only what helps. Each word a gift. Don't grieve God. Don't break his heart. His Holy Spirit moving and breathing in you is the most intimate part of your life, making you fit for himself. Don't take such a gift for granted. Make a clean break with all cutting, backbiting, profane talk. Be gentle with one another, sensitive. Forgive one another as quickly and thoroughly as God in Christ forgave you. And then watch what God does. And then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents. Mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. So love like that. Sisters and brothers, that is the word of God. Amen.